Hello there and welcome to another exciting episode here on the Green Living Chat podcast. Today, Daniel and I bring you an exciting conversation on the research stories segment. Hi everyone, in this episode, we dig into discussions on artificial intelligence and sustainability where we explore how this works in both industry and research. We hope that you find a place where this can enrich in your research story. Professor Peter Shaw is an Australian scientist with extensive applications in artificial intelligence, which he has been doing for more than a decade now in the areas of FPT algorithms, medical research in cancer treatments, as well as enhanced machine learning network models, among others. He is currently working at the Nanjing University of Information Science and Technology. Professor Peter Shaw has several high-level publications as well as distinguished academic and industry awards, which include an Emmy Technology and Engineering Award and the Jiangsu 100 Foreign Talent Research Fund. He is also a pleasant person with whom to bring coffee. Have you ever wondered how artificial intelligence helps us to develop solutions in our everyday lives? In this exciting episode, Professor Peter Shaw joins us to discuss some of the ways AI is being used ranging from cancer treatments in the medical sciences to sustainability and more. Yeah, so on today's segment, we got a little nerdy and we talked about how Peter got into computer science and how he's using it to find solutions in the medical field. We also talked about the significance of AI and research in the medical field and how AI can be applied in sustainability. What does artificial intelligence mean for sustainability and what are the ethical issues we are being faced with as we become more dependent on AI? These and more in our discussion. It was a super interesting conversation and I really can't wait to share this conversation Daniel had with Peter Shaw on this particular episode. So why don't you grab a coffee and let's dive into this conversation. Here we go. You are listening to the Green Living Chat podcast, a podcast where we discuss emerging environmental issues around the world, as well as related ongoing research to find sustainable solutions. This is the Research Story segment. I am your host, David Ewisimensa, with your co-host, Daniel Fifi Teria Hagen. We use this platform to support environmental-related initiatives, research, and projects through interdisciplinary conversations that promote holistic critical thinking. This podcast is brought to you by Ecoamet Solutions in Ghana with a mission to going back to green. So join us on this train this and every Sunday. Here we go. All right, guys, I'm here today with Professor Peter Shaw, uh, who is yeah, Peter is a is a good friend of mine. Um, we are currently both at the Nanjing University of Information Science and Technology. And Peter is doing something that I know a lot of you are very curious about um, and are probably scared to go into. Uh, he's an AI expert 
And he's going to pour out his expertise to us in very simple ways with simple words. And we hope that this conversation will just serve as some sort of motivation for some of you who are probably thinking of going into AI, but not sure what you can do with AI. We can't cover everything, but um, Peter is going to make sure he gives you at least something to whet your appetite and to uh, get you interested in AI. And more specifically, today we are looking at AI and sustainability. We're going to go straight into our conversation. Welcome, Peter. This is Green Living Chats podcast. Thank you. My area is actually computer science, in particular, um, a type of optimization, generally optimization, called parameterized complexity, which is a, a new approach to um, solving otherwise hard problems. So then, then how does this apply to AI and how did I get into it? So a lot of theoretical computer science ends up being very good for digesting coffee, but totally useless. Um, mm. Where AI has generally been quite useful recently. This is an oversimplification, of course, so I don't want to offend my friends. We, we, we really try and be helpful. But um, when I try to apply my computer science into the real world, particularly medicine, um, what I found was that there was a sort of probabilistic interface that we had to solve. By probabilistic, I, I include statistics and machine learning in, in, in that sort of bucket. The thing that I think computer science can help with in this whole area as a type of mathematics is we think about how expensive it is to solve a problem where mathematicians think about how to solve the problem. They think, is it computable or is it not computable? But they don't think how much resources do you need to compute it? Mm. And so this causes a big disconnect. And in fact, I think it's a fairly huge disconnect when it's coupled with electrical engineering. Okay. Before we get into serious conversations, could you tell us about yourself, a brief discussion of who you are, what we need to know about you? Um, let us know how your journey has brought you to this point. Sure. So I'm an Australian. I'm not a, um, a meteorologist like Daniel. Um, I'm, I'm a, a computer scientist who's trying to apply his research into AI, but I still think there are some significant sort of conclusions that we can get from that uh, about applying AI into, into the whole situation. The, of course, the most topical thing that I saw presented recently, there's a, a famous um, computer scientist well worth listening to, Mosaverdi, who is one of the, the leading fellows in the ACM uh, society. And um, he recently posted a nice picture. We could even put it as a backdrop maybe later, showing the crossover between diminishing returns of AI and the benefit on the environment from AI research. Okay. And so the, with any science, with any um, advances, the, the benefits sort of eventually get some sort of diminishing returns. Mm. And at the same time, I think everybody who uses a computer will be aware of the power consumption increase mm. of these devices. And I think when I started using computers, they're actually really big things, which had paper tape 
and power supplies that made the room hum. But when, when a lot of people started using computers, they had like 30 watt power supplies in them. Mm -hmm. And um, when I was using my computer today, I, I made sure to open the window so it wouldn't overheat because it's got a 1600 watt power supply in it. And um, I was actually thinking in a recent proposal I put out for my computer to offset the electricity that I was using with wind generators um, as a way of sort of arguing that I wasn't using too much power. So put that on a slightly different perspective. It was sort of a joke we're having around about 2003. So going back to the question that Daniel asked me, I did my PhD at the University of Newcastle under Professor Michael Fellows, who has now become really quite notorious. He's, he, in my era of computer science, he's famous for um, developing parameterized complexity, which is a, a way of solving problems that are otherwise thought um, intractable. Uh, what does intractable mean? It means no matter how big your computer is, even if it was as big as the universe, that is one processor for every atom in the universe running at the speed of um, x-rays, you wouldn't be able to solve these problems. Oh. But we, he developed a technique that allows us to solve some of these problems within, um, by constraining it into a realistic paradigm and, and a, a way of working out what is solvable or not. But given the topic, if we sort of scooby-doo back to that point, <laughs> a lot of problems that are computable, that is, in theory, you could get a computer to solve them. In practice, computable means that without constraining your mathematician, they may want to run it on a computer the size of the universe at X-ray speeds. Well, that's an awful lot of power if you consume all the energy in the universe to solve your problem yeah. and would have, I guess, fairly severe environmental damage, not only to our planet, but everything else in the universe. So without placing some realistically constraints on what we let our AI model do, it, it could just be totally out of control and use every bit of power that was available to our sun. Um, no, we're not there yet, but I mean, in terms of the theory of the mathematics, yeah. that's, that's gonna be a pushing force towards trying to solve any of these problems, that, that you could literally use the entire electricity of some country. So that brings me to my story that um, after doing my PhD, I was listening to a discussion group and the person coming to visit was from the electricity grid in the US. And he was very happy. He said they'd recently changed their supercomputer and they would like to invite us to use their new supercomputer and then he secretly said the reason why they changed the computers wasn't because they needed the extra compute. It was that for some time now, it had been appearing on their power usage as the single line of most power consumption in America. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so, so they bought a bigger one so that it was a little bit more efficient for a moment and, and came up at like the third biggest use rather than the first. So you got interested in, in this and, and how did you sort of find areas of application of, um, of your expertise? 
Well, of course, I really liked the mathematics and the graph theory and the drinking coffee, but I had a lot of my friends die of cancer. And so I had this desire to want to fight back while I could solve these combinatorial problems, optimization problems. When you go to speak to somebody like a doctor or like Daniel and say, how can I help you? They don't in initially present their problem as a graph theory problem. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it's, it has this, this translation um, step between understanding what they, they want you to solve and what you solve for them. Of course, there's a few parts of that. One is listening to the person. Listening is always a big part. And, and the second, though, is, is this probabilistic mapping between the observations that the person has and the combinatorial problem. So the good news, I think, in solving the combinatorial problem is if you look at the power used, it's, it's sort of roughly proportional to the, the running speed of your algorithm. And so if you look at the, the speed up of the algorithms that we have between um, now and 20 years ago, I, I looked it up about three years ago when I was teaching. And so the speed up was something like, I think about um, 200 times in terms of the computing power, but it was about 11,000 times in terms of the program's running mm -hmm. speed because of improved algorithms. I can see so there's, there's actually been a huge increase in the, the speed at which we can solve these problems from the, the computer science much greater than the speed increase from the electronics. Mm. In fact, right now, the electronics is smashing up in terms of a lot of fundamental physics laws. Mm. And one of those is that the increase in speed that you get of your processor is quadratically related to the power that you use. So if you want your machine to run twice as fast, then you need to have four times the power. For four times as fast, you need 16 times the power. Mm. So, of course, parallelism breaks that down a little bit, but not entirely. So this great propensity for just a little bit more speed to require significantly greater power. And I think then the second thing in terms of, of environmental damage for computers is the, the short-term vision that the whole computer industry has brought on the environmental impact of what we're doing. So when computers were first built, when I started using, they would have one computer per institution. They weren't too worried about the environmental impact of those. And I think in much the same way as a hospital is not too worried about the radiation effect of having an X-ray machine because they mix the pollution, the radiation from the, the X-ray machine with all the other pollutants that well, sheets and bedding and cotton wool that comes out of the hospital. And so on average, it's pretty small. And so when they were thinking about this with computers and a lot of electrical devices, they were just worrying about trying to get something that works to win the war, win the war on Second World War, and then win the war on, on some fire, very pressing issue. And over the time, the, the cost of this pollution is, is mounting up and, and because of this Moore's law, the fact that every um, two years, the running speed of your process computer doubles, and we're wanting to keep increasing the, the performance of our machines so that it can keep up with the speed of the programs we, we expect it to run. I think there's a lot of economic pressure. As we know, Apple 
likes to deliberately make our phones run slower mm-hmm. and force us to buy new ones as well. Fundamentally, people always needing to, to get faster machines. And so, so we're throwing these things away and buying new ones. Yeah, I think you're already going into sort of sustainability over there. I really want us to continue that conversation because it's certainly something that our listeners are interested in and it, it is the focus of this podcast. We will definitely build up on that over there. Um, so before we come back to that, I wanted you to sort of finish up on the cancer story that you started over there. What are some of the things that you've been able to do with AI in the study of cancer? Yeah, so the initial things that I, I was wanting to do was solve some real problems that were useful for, for doctors. So I went and I spoke to them about what problems they would want me to solve. And, and um, this actually meant talking to the people at University of Knoxville, Tennessee, and they wanted um, to be able to analyze bigger data sets. And for that, what they needed was some pre-processing rules that could be run on the, the data sets. Um, in particular, uh, there was a problem that I've looked a lot at called cluster editing, which is a, a sort of noise reduction algorithm. And they'd only been able to run it on fairly small data sets, like under 10 and I managed to find a generalized reduction rule that increased the size that we could handle up initially to thousands, but, but now with my recent work, maybe 100,000 um, variables that we're looking at. So this was a, a big win, but as I said, this was for solving what was essentially a graph theory problem. And so I then had this interest in applying it to medicine. So initially I first used statistics to, to turn the results into some medical results. And then as, as we all know, there's been this tremendous growth in deep learning. And so I looked at how I could use deep learning as well to apply this into the medical area. And in the, the medical area, the, the first problem I was looking at was lung cancer and what really people would like to be able to look at is can we identify which genes or which RNA are part of some system. So if you imagine looking at a picture of a traffic light and there's things going whoa, whoa together, then these would all be correlated variables. And so we'd like to be able to find those variables and and link them together. And maybe you have two groups of variables together. If you think of a, a room of people, maybe some people are there because they want a cup of coffee, Maybe some people are there to um, because they're part of that class. Maybe some people are doing um, medicine and they want to propose some medical problems to the group. And so there are some people that will be part of two or more of those groups. And so identifying those groups and identifying people that are part of more groups then becomes a very useful thing to do. In addition to predicting some important variable like when will the class finish? And when can I get out of the room, um, which might be the decision problem we want to solve. It's useful to also understand the system that you're going through. In a medical perspective, this is medical pathways, although in different d- domains, they have different ways of describing it. I think Daniel likes to look at this in terms of entropy yeah. and yeah. causality. Yeah. So this is the, the network models that I was, I was producing. I was getting the variables. I was doing pairwise correlation between them. So what was the similarity between all pairs of variables? 
and then I was trying to use network models to to group them together, but allowing some level of, of false positives and false negatives, mm. error in the data and identifying possible error. So this tool I got working very well. Um, and then I was able to apply it to more and more problems. Uh, I've been looking at applying it to a lot of the indigenous health issues mm. in the Northern Territory. Um, the Aboriginals in Australia are really quite repressed. And also because they've been um, only recently introduced to the Western diseases, their genetic immunity to these diseases is, is very limited in the same way we're very susceptible to getting COVID. And so we've had to work very hard to try and help them. Wow. Just a final follow-up question on, the, on that is, have you seen some of your research sort of materialize in the real world or have you have, have you received any feedback from any of these medical experts that you you sometimes work with or that you sometimes speak with sure yeah so i'm i'm working with the the menzies school of health research and so one of the things that i've been doing also recently is being involved in a lot of systematic review and meta-analysis mm. which is an attempt to more um, scientifically codify how the results of a lot of different papers can be put together and, and come up with a result. And so recently I've been sort of aggressively criticizing some of these studies. And the way this has come about is the doctors I've been researching with have approached me and my friends, Rama, and said, this particular paper that we read, it's dangerously wrong. You know, can you do something about this before they, it changes a policy and hurts people? And so we've gone and read this, this paper and, and um, realized the mathematical faults that are there and then um, written a, a review paper that points it out to the other readers. Can we clarify nomenclature uh, quickly before we move on, just in case some of our listeners are not uh, clear on um, machine learning, artificial intelligence, which we're calling AI and deep learning. Would you quickly give us some clarity on these three terms sure yeah so well when ai came about there's a sort of cheeky comment made by when someone said well what is ai and the comment was ai is what is new <laughs> and as soon as you can get a computer to do it yeah. then it's no longer intelligence and so so then we have to do something more impressive mm -hmm. so this is a sort of definition of ai I sort of use this to try and argue um, a point where I'm trying to do some sort of person on a chip simulations to validate the models that I get with one of my friends, NASA, who is a sort of expert on, on microfluidic experiments. And my argument was that that's sort of AI because it's new. So I was trying to push the envelope a little bit mm. in the definition of what AI is. Um, but AI definitely also includes sort of some bigger concepts about training of and obtaining data sets so in a statistical approach you would always come with your data pre-recorded and then um, get some conclusion from it and in ai you've got ideas like reinforcement learning where the the data is continuously being connected by a tesla cars driving around the road mm. being used to to retrain the model to get it better so then we have this area of machine learning and, and machine learning has got this new area which is called deep learning. Mm. So I think machine learning is, is in my mind, probabilistic models 
which of various forms, Bayesian models, random forests, and other models like that. And then you have a particular type of model now, which is called deep learning. Mm. So, so what's the difference between machine learning and deep learning? Mm. In my mind, deep learning is a very cool marketing name <laughs> for a particular type of model. Yeah. Um, but I'll try and explain it in a slightly different perspective. One of these sort of traditional um, models is called a support vector machine. Mm. So a support vector machine basically says, if I have uh, in two dimensions, um, some red dots and some blue dots representing two types of data, maybe sick patients and well patients, mm. and I want to classify them and I want to draw a line between them maybe it's a straight line or maybe it's a curved line then calculating that line is a support vector machine now a single line separating two points ends up being mathematically equivalent to a neural network with one row in it okay so so what's the difference between one row in a neural network and multiple rows that we call deep learning and just for all and, sake, the, the neural network is a, is a deep learning approach. Yeah. yeah. So there's a really nice paper um, by Chris Ola, who is one of the, the um, writers of TensorFlow. Mm. Um, you might know him from the, his blogs talk uh, very nicely about some of these concepts where basically he, he's, he describes in your support vector machine, you're trying to draw a straight line between these two points. And then um, if it was on some rubber, you might want to sort of stretch that rubber so that the points aligned mm. in, in so that you could easily draw a straight line between them. Mm. And so every layer of, of your neural network is, is like a, another attempt to mm. stretch that rubber and twist it around so, so that you're effectively unwrapping something like a, a two-arm spiral so that you can then draw a line between them. And the number of, of layers you need is proportional to how many times you do that. Wow, that's a lot of fun and um, a lot of clarity as well. Hi there, just a quick one. So if you're enjoying this conversation, why don't you just share this episode with a friend of a friend and let's get more people to listen to this episode. The agency of climate change and humans reducing our impact and footprint on the environment is a necessity. And these are the conversations we need to promote. You can also help us by giving us a star rating or sharing your comments on whichever platform you are listening to this episode. Visit our websites and our social media platforms in the show notes and get interactive with us or send us an email at glcpodcast at ecoamidsolutions.com. So thank you in advance. Let's get back into this conversation. So we will go back to the, the discussion that you started before. It looks as if you were going into sustainability. I hope this is not too much. I'm going to try to read a quick extract from an article that I read um, written by Connor Riffle. It's called What Artificial Intelligence Means for Sustainability. Because mm -hmm. here, here at GLC, we are really looking into some of the ways that AI or machine learning or deep learning is going to help us to deal with environmental problems. So here is a very quick read. 
the vast majority of the mentions of artificial intelligence in reports relate to how AI presents opportunities for companies. For example, AI is helping the next generation of companies reduce their environmental and social impact by improving efficiency and developing new products. We can look at a utility company, um, Excel Energy. So this is the name of a company. When the company creates electricity from burning coal at its two plants in Texas, one major byproduct is a potent greenhouse gas called nitrous oxide. Nitrous oxide emissions contribute to climate change as well as harming the ozone layer. So this is very important to, to me and I'm sure a lot, of, a lot of listeners. And it goes on to say that recently the company has received a little help in reducing its emissions from artificial intelligence. Excel has equipped its smokestacks in Texas with neural networks, an advanced artificial intelligence that simulates a human brain. The neural network quickly can analyze the data that results from the complex dynamics of coal combustion. It can then make highly accurate recommendations by adjusting the plant's operation to reduce nitrous oxide emissions and operate at peak efficiency. As a result, neural networks have helped Excel Energy and over 100 other companies worldwide reduce their nitrous oxide emissions. A report from the International Energy Agency estimated that artificial intelligence control systems such as Excel Energy's neural network could reduce nitrous oxide emission by 20%. So this is, this is a very, um, it looks like a remarkable feat. This is uh, something that I wish you could help break it down. How do you think artificial intelligence can help us with sustainability? I mean, uh, you could either use this example or continue the example that you started when you were talking about computers and, and the upcoming algorithms that are acquiring more computational power and all that. Okay, so I'm going to take a slightly different approach to answering this question. Sure. Daniel probably knows that I like to do this. Um, <laughs> and then I'll try and go back to the question more exactly. So I often talk to some microbiologists or some medical researchers. Hmm. My marketing pitch to them is something like this. So how much time did it take you to get that data? And they say, oh, about 20 years. And how much money did you spend collecting that data? And they say, oh, give or take about $20 million. Maybe it's a lot more. Mm -hmm. And then I say, and what did you do to analyze the data? They said, oh, we put it into this Excel spreadsheet and did a pivot diagram. Okay. And, and how long did that take? Oh, about one second. <laughs> and so there tends to be a, a tremendous disconnect between um, cost and value of their data mm. and the amount of human brain power that they apply to analyze this data. And in the same way, very large numbers of nicely trained mathematicians are starving, hungry, and in need of coffee and good data to analyze. Mm. And so if, if you reached out to find somebody's PhD student and they spent three months on that, they would probably produce a vastly better result mm. than your Excel spreadsheet, even if it's got a neural network addition to it. There's some lovely diagrams you can get that basically say, look, I plugged these Lego blocks together and I got a better model, <laughs> you know, and it's very easy if you don't understand the mathematics behind what you're doing to, to end up with a very impressive looking number in terms of what the model claims its predictable um, capacity is, 
and what it actually does. So without really doing a lot of environmental damage, I think getting a mathematician and who understands what they're doing to help you produce a better model would end up with something that used less greenhouse gas to produce and was more useful. <laughs> so that's that's my recommendation about this. The, 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 my mathematician friends are, are starving for coffee and if you don't give it to them, they might hurt you anyway. The, the, the other side of this is, is that left unchecked with everybody just grabbing the latest powerful deep learning model and running it on Amazon is going to, or... Um, Google or wherever you're running it, it's going to produce a vast amount of pollutants, both in terms of the, the coal used by the generator mm. and also in terms of the, the environmental damage that's gone into getting the rare elements required to build it. And so I think that, that you have to remember when you're using the the deep learning in particular, which is very expensive. Other things like random forests use far less power. Mm. But when you're using deep learning models, you have to think about um, is the environmental damage really justified um, for one or 2% better, where actually having a sensible model mm. will make a big difference. The training of these models can be hugely important. Like um, I was working on one project. This is one of my favorite stories, so I just chuck it in where a, a container ship had lost its load. And what causes these container ships to lose their load is that some of the, the containers are packed very unevenly. And so they were taking pictures of containers um, in a packing yard, a uh, shipping yard, before they were put on the ships. And the model had said with 97% accuracy or some high accuracy that these were all packed properly. Hmm. And... It had failed. They'd lost a ship. And they were saying, with such an accurate model, why had it failed? Mm. And, and when they looked at the, the pictures in a sort of autopsy of this failure, they found that what the model had actually predicted was whether or not there was a rat in the picture or not. And, and so <laughs> they'd overtrained their model. Okay. So when you're building these models up, it's very important to have somebody who understands what overtraining is and you know this whole issue of variance and bias and and how to choose the right model for what you're doing because a simple model is always best and a simple model will also use less power to train mm. so i think that that's very useful but but on the other side the other story i wanted to give that i love to give was um this is even back in about 2007 or something when you look at the amount of power that's used by, at that time, by Google data center. It ends up being about the same power, half the power of a nuclear reactor. So you've oh. got like a, a nuclear reactor and half the power coming out of it is going straight into oh. a data center. Hmm. And Google's defense of that was quite rightly justified. They said, we use about half the power of our competition. So don't get upset with us. We have been trying very hard to be environmentally friendly. Mm. And probably the data center and the way they do things there is much less power than when it's distributed to everybody's home and they're running them in their own home. Mm. And um, you know, my joke at the moment is the way I'm gonna keep warm during this winter 
is I'm just going to use the GPU on my computer a lot because my wife doesn't like me having the heater on because um, it wastes electricity. But, but my GPU makes more heat for me than my um, heater anyway. So that was the plan. So I think we have to be carefully considering how much power using in these devices. Mm. Obviously, with the, the NO2 reduction and all the efficiency gains that we can get, there, there is a lot of um, benefit. And there is greater benefit still coming out of, of AI than the power that we're using. We can sort of plot that line, but we can see that it, we're getting very close to the point where the two lines cross over. So as we feed hungry mathematicians their coffee by getting more sensible models and offset our, our um, GPU power consumption by um, using alternative energy and, and carbon footprint, um, you know, plant, planting trees and things as a way to um, conscientiously deal with that. Yeah. Um, we may slow some of that damage down, but the amount that needs to be done and, and what needs to be done properly for that, I'll leave in the environmentalists to, to come with, up with their advice as well, because I'm just a coffee staff mathematician who wants to be helpful. Yeah. It's actually one of the things that we are hoping to encourage and promote here at, at this podcast to encourage interdisciplinary conversations. And so, you know, you'd have a mathematician, you'd have a, a computer scientist, and then you'd have a, an environmental scientist all working on the problem. And not that the environmental scientist is blindly picking up some AI algorithm and, and, and applying it. And, and so yeah, what you're saying definitely makes sense. And and it reminds me of, of what we usually say in climate science that, you know, we have a, a climate science conference and then all the scientists, you know, they take flights to the place, you know, essentially uh, <laughs> um, polluting the environment to manage pollution. It's one of those circle of life things. Anyway, I have a curious question that do you think there are some ethical issues with AI, with the AI community or with the use of AI? Are there some off the top of your head that you want to share with us? Of course, there's ethical issues involved with it. Mm. I think one of the challenges with this whole thing is when you look at it from a higher perspective, you, you can definitely see they're there. But while you're doing it, it, it's hard to see the ethics involved. You know, if I give you a group of numbers on a piece of paper and I ask you to add them up, then you wouldn't feel any ethical problem adding up those numbers. And so the question is, when does adding up those numbers mm. become unethical. And of course, mathematics is this type of power because with the knowledge that comes from mathematics, you get power mm. and the, the inevitable consequence of power and, and a fallen humanity is that you get bad things going on. Mm. But at the same time, it's very clear that the misuse of AI can be used in a disastrous way. Early examples for me of this, there was Target. Target was doing aggressive advertising for selling their baby products because, you know, new mothers is a big area for business. And so there was a guy, a man with a 13-year-old daughter, and she receiving these targeted, um, secretly targeted material addressed to her in the mail. Her father saw this and was furious, rightly so, with um, Target for sending this to his young daughter, was not ready to have a baby, both physically and in terms of her life, in a general sort of perspective. So he went and confronted the manager of Target and said to him, 
why did you send this to my daughter? Of course, he was just in charge of packing shelves. Mm -hmm. So he said, give me two weeks and I'll tell you what went on. He went back two weeks later and the target man was very apologetic. And he said, actually, I should be apologizing to you because there was a conversation that I didn't have with my daughter that um, she was actually pregnant, but she didn't know. But even though she didn't know, the AI that was looking at what she was browsing at in the shops and her shopping habits had rightfully detected the fact that she was pregnant before a pregnancy test. Mm. So the, the people writing this program, you know, they, they're like, we didn't do anything unethically yeah. <laughs> in their perspective when they're writing it. But clearly they had, yeah. and clearly it's had to stop. And, and, and I think because this is happening in a corporate setting, even getting ethics approval before doing the work doesn't exist, right? Because they're not trying to publish that. They're just writing predictive models. And now everyone monitoring us on the internet is selling our data and using it to manipulate our thinking and using it to um, control the behavior in the world. And it's very clear at that level that there's ethical issues. When I use AI and I start using it to produce medicines that can be used potentially to save lives or to make weapons, they're very clear ethical issues. But there's some other ethical questions that we've been looking at, I think they're very important too, which is if business or a government department are holding a large amount of information on you, then surely they have a responsibility to use that information to help the population, you, that's on the database, rather than to hurt you. Wow, that's really a lot. I think that for upcoming leaders and scientists, this is certainly something to be thinking about. Um, and, and on that point, actually on that point, uh, I'm wondering what sort of advice you have for those interested in the field and would like to, to delve into it. Because at least in, uh, in the area of environmental science, David was recently discussing with me on how AI is being used to classify waste in, in the area of waste management, which of course makes a lot of sense to me because in AI is very helpful with classification. I mean, the basis of some of the things you mentioned, like SVM, random forest, it's, it's really about uh, classification of, of the data that we have. So for those interested in the field, what is your advice for them? Well, um, work together. Because if you ask me to classify rubbish, I waste, I would, I would balk because I could produce a model, but it may be um, totally useless because I don't understand chemistry. I don't understand the environment. But at the same time, I could probably produce a much more reliable model mm. than, than you can. And, and so I think it's really important to work together. In software engineering, which is another thing that I'm part of, we have this concept of agile. And the idea of agile is that uh, you have to have a, a, a multifaceted team. The best way to develop something is to get a customer and actually ask them to spend six months as part of your team mm. and learn about your mathematics, learn about your software, and you learn about their domain expertise. Mm. And by working together, you're going to get a good result. And we understand as software engineers that we need that customer mm. and without their actual involvement in the project. And, and here we're not talking about questionnaires, we're talking about them being educated about what we're trying to do and us being educated about what they need as friends. You pretty well should give up before you even try. 
So, so this is what's come out of the, the software engineering perspective. And another thing I think that's really good news is that when we've looked at software engineering of doing these jobs, initially people thought that they could succeed by having huge teams of 1,000 or 10,000 people. And by having a huge team, they break through. And because of the communication problems and the, and the team management problems associated with huge teams, it actually works out that it's not an effective way of doing it. Mm. And so after one of these particularly bad um, projects, I think it was IBM did a, a deconstructive review about it. And, and their final decision was that if they were asked to do a project like that again, they would choose the 10 best people and give them everything they asked for leave them alone and let them have a go. And after six months, if they'd made progress, they were going to succeed. And if they hadn't, it, the technology wasn't up to it. Mm -hmm. And if that didn't succeed, having a bigger group wouldn't make it succeed either. And I think this is a great opportunity for some of our, our smaller groups to, to really have a go. Because even though you think, but there's IBM and there's Microsoft and there's really rich people there, unlimited resources to do this work, what can we do? And I, I would suggest it goes back to that adage that nothing really significant was ever achieved except through a really small group of people that sat around a table. And so having a, a small group of people working together have a great potential to succeed because we can listen to each other mm. and we can work together and, and that will help us succeed in tackling these areas. Fantastic. That's I, I love I love that response. So you you've been working on AI problems for a long time now. I mean machine learning problems. Uh, mm. wh where do you see the limits of this ML AI DL movement? I think one of the things we have to be very careful about, and I think this gets into the ethics too, mm. is that it is just mathematics, mm. really. Um, it, it's it's applicable mathematics, and that's what computer science comes into it. Mm. And AI tends to be particularly good at solving things within a small domain. If you look at what Elon Musk was saying about singularity and the potential damage of a breakthrough, you know, intelligent AI, the AI would be optimizing some problem within its domain. So you, you might get a, a, an absolutely brilliant AI that's optimizing something like the reduction of CO2 in the world. Mm. And its conclusion might be, the best way to do that is to wipe out humanity. <laughs> and is that, a, is that an optimal solution that we want to have? Yeah. I think that the thing about optimization is that in a high dimensional space, there can be a number of equally optimal solutions, mm. but the AI doesn't have the bigger picture about what it's trying to do. Yeah. And so it may solve the problem by wiping out humanity. Yeah. It may solve the problem by finding an equally ludicrous solution like forgetting about the environment at all. Yeah. And, and so the danger of a lot of these AIs is they're, they're doing these, these optimizations that, that they're getting very good at mm. and their own self-preservation and, and obtaining greater resources mm. to be able to improve their computation may be a, a far more likely outcome. And so they, they may in fact increase their economic wealth to build themselves a bigger computer so that they may be able to solve your CO2 problem and inadvertently um, burn up the atmosphere in the, in the process. And, and so we have to have an external view of these systems because they're very focused. They're a little bit like me when I'm trying to solve a math problem. 
I can I can get very involved in trying to solve this problem and you know forget to put pants on or something. It can be quite embarrassing. So <laughs> we should avoid these embarrassing situations. I believe you. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> this is a very good point that you made. Reminds me of the of the Avengers movie Age of Ultron. Ultron mm. is is this supposed to be a, a superhero? And created by Tony Stark and Iron Man, and who is supposed to end wars before they start. And his solution was to kill the Avengers because he found he found out that when the Avengers came up, more threats came in, and so uh, it looked like the solution is to get rid of the Avengers, who will be his obstacle to dealing with the other problem, which is getting rid of humanity, killing all humans, and beginning everything all over again. I mean, Ultron was a was an AI. <laughs> He's an AI technology, so. <laughs> of course. Well, I think, yeah. um, you know, Marvel, um, Disney are, are, are getting at that from a, a simplistic perspective. But I think probably um, the way these will really optimize is a slightly different way. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and so we have to be be careful about what, what's going on because, you know, a lot of these things are given a, a great deal of power um, in the modern world. Mm. Everybody talks about the influence of the YouTube algorithm and, and stuff like that. Yeah. Although um, I'm not sure if that's really an AI, but but I think these things can can end up really seeming malicious mm. when it's really just an optimization as well. Thank you so much, Peter. Um, folks, this has been um, awesome. Uh, just getting warmed up and yet we have to bring it to a close. But um, Peter, before we go, we allow you to greet someone or give out some shout outs to someone. Yeah. Well, I, I suppose I'd shout out to all my friends, um, particularly my friends in Nanjing and, and, and hope you're having a, a lovely time today. But my, my brain's a bit sleepy at the moment to answer that question, right? Because <laughs> I'm an introverted mathematician at heart. So. All right. We've, I've really enjoyed this. And I'll be doing a reflection session on this to reflect mm -hmm. on some of the things that Peter said that may be a bit difficult to assimilate for some of our, our listeners and just to break it down a little and to help everyone fully benefit from this. But it's been fantastic. Thank you so much, Peter. And we look forward to getting some feedbacks and pointing people in your direction. And Peter is always ready for uh, some collaboration when you want to have conversations. So thank you so much, Peter. Thank you, Daniel. It's been great talking to you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Green Living Charts podcast. This has been the Research Stories segment. We believe that critical thinking is for everyone and no one's story is an island. We hope that you find where your story meets others here. We look forward to hearing your thoughts and comments as we get interactive on our social media platforms at Echoamet Solutions on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube and LinkedIn. If you would like to be part of these conversations, contact us via email at glcpodcasts@echoametsolutions.com or see our contact details in the show notes. See you on the next episode and remember, live green.